Welcome back to the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name is Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. For our final show in season one, I'm thrilled to be joined by Benita Best Wong, the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Water at the Environmental Protection Agency. Benita, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm surprised and honored that I'm the final podcast. Yes, we're very excited. The season has gone very well. We have talked to people all across the country from all of the major Clean Water Act programs to talk about basically how this all works together in water. And we're really excited to finish with you. And we're going to bring back all of our guests for for some clips on this question. Um, But before we get into that question, I want to know a little bit about yourself. What, uh, where'd you go to school? What's your background? Just kind of a quick bio. Well, um, Jeff, I, I was born in Guyana, South America, and immigrated to the States when I was very young. Grew up in Albany, New York. I went to um, college at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., um, and have lived in Washington, D.C. and New York State for most of my life. Excellent. So why did you get into environmental work? What attracted you to this space? So I always have to start off with uh, my my college uh, education. So I went to college. I went to Georgetown um, to be a doctor. That was my mother's dream for me, to be a <laughs> pediatrician. And, I, and while at Georgetown, I was a chemistry major. I realized that I really didn't like biology that much and anatomy. And I had a great advisor who said to me, you know what, Benita, there's a growing field in environmental policy and environmental science. I think it would be a great um, opportunity for you. So I I started out working with a contractor, uh, supporting the Department of Defense and environmental work. And I was fortunate to get a job at the agency 33 years ago. And I've worked in water my entire life. I um I think the thing that really attracted me the most to work at the Environmental Protection Agency is because I, I, you know, I always thought about what my mother said to me about becoming a doctor. And I really do believe that my work at the agency has helped so many more people than I would have ever been able to serve or help as a pediatrician. So, you know, I, I tell people that I work at the greatest public health agency in the world. And I'm proud to um, support the agency's efforts to provide clean and safe water for everyone. I love that. And you gave me a flashback to college and having to dissect things in biology. And I have to be honest, not a fan of that either. Probably why I went into the environmental field as well. A little bit more fun and a little less uh, icky. Uh, yes. To into the dissection stuff. So, um, well, this season we talked a lot about the accomplishments of the first 50 years of the Clean Water Act. So this podcast launched on the anniversary, the 50th anniversary day. Uh, That was episode one that we had with John Gooden, who you're familiar with, and Tom Stiles uh, of Kansas. Um, But as we start to think about the second half century of work in clean water, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing water quality professionals? 
Well, Jeff, you know, when Congress passed the Clean Water Act 50 years ago, the goal was really to prevent, reduce, and eliminate pollution in our nation's waters. In order to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and a bio biological integrity of the nation's waters, that aspiration um, that our nation's water would be fishable and swimmable is, um, is something that I believe we have made tremendous progress towards. Because of the Clean Water Act, we have wastewater treatment facilities that are providing secondary treatment across the country. That was not the case in the 1980s. And now we have systems that are using more advanced treatment to address pollutants such as nutrient nutrients. I do believe that our ability to regulate discharges for point source pollution and essentially for protecting fish, shellfish, wildlife, and the waters we re recreate in has been um, tremendous. We have done, we've made tremendous progress in this, those areas. I think the biggest challenge for us and that we face is undoubtedly the impact or our ability to impact non-point source pollution. You know, we have, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to um, regulate discharges from diffuse sources. That's a big challenge. And I think the other thing that we have, we are, we are, we need to make more progress on is that our need to really ensure that we're providing clean water for all, regardless of a person's zip code, their skin color, or the amount of money that they have in their um, pockets. So I think, you know, right now I'm really pleased with the work that we're doing at the agency to make our resources, our grants um, more accessible to low-income communities and the work that we're doing to establish technical assistance programs. I'm really also encouraged by the work that we're doing with uh, the USDA on addressing nutrient pollution, working together, having our programs work together in order to address the diffuse uh, sources of pollution, especially from agricultural community. And then I think, you know, climate, climate is always going to be a challenge for us. And I know that um, our state and tribal partners are really working across the U.S. to address the um, impacts of extreme weather, which is also sort of tied in with uh, non-point source pollution. You know, I think what I'm, I'm most grateful for in this season that we're in is some of the resources that Congress has provided to us in order to address those challenges. So uh, we have the bipartisan infrastructure law, where our wastewater and drinking water facilities have an unprecedented amount of funding to address not only the, the pollutants and pollution that come from, their, um, from the wastewater treatment plants, but also to address some of the climate challenges that those facilities are, 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 are facing. I also think that we also have an opportunity with the, with the bipartisan infrastructure law funds to address the issue of, of access that so many of uh, Americans across the U.S. don't have because of the color of their skin and the amount of resources they have. So the ability for us to take the resources that we have now to invest in resilient infrastructure, to address climate change 
at our treatment plants, as well as in those iconic geographic programs that we have where we receive more funding is, is just tremendous. And we have the opportunity to, with all of these programs, not only to invest in our gray infrastructure, but also our green infrastructure, which I, which I just think is phenomenal. So you touched on a lot of different things there. Uh, Nonpoint, uh, we talked about in episode seven. So just the, the previous episode, we talked to a, a couple of professionals in that program and certainly a lot of work to be done in, in the nonpoint realm in the 319 program. Um, you talked a little bit about climate change, which spoiler, there's going to be some climate change talk uh, from some of our professionals that we're bringing back here for the challenges of the next 50 years. Um, would you say that you have sort of an overall vision for how states, tribes, and territories can can work with EPA to help meet some of these challenges? You know, I think that we have done a great job working with our our state and tribal partners. You talk, you you mentioned that John Gooden and Tom Styles were on um, for the first podcast. I think that's a great example where EPA has partnered with the states in order to make significant progress on addressing impaired waters and working together to ensure that we use the limited resources that we have in ways that can really advance the goals of the Clean Water Act. I think it's really important that we continue to engage with our states to work with organizations such as the Association of Clean Water Administrators, our environmental, um, the Ecos Council, of states and also to use opportunities that we have to engage with our tribal partners and to ensure that they also have a seat at the table as we work to address some of these challenges. Resources always helps. <laughs> Resources always help. I think, you know, um, the challenge for our states is the fact that you know, their budgets have not necessarily been increasing. So I do think it's, we at EPA have to find ways to provide, you know, I talked about providing technical assistance to low-income communities so that they can um, take advantage of the funding that's available now. We also need to work with our states to see how we can use enterprise-wide solutions, work together, leverage the limited resources we have in order to put in place um, some solutions that'll work nationally and that states might be able to adapt to meet their needs. It's a challenge. You know, we are we are really working with intention right now. Intention and I guess more strategic attention to ensure that we really focus on the things that are mo most critical for our states, our territories and our tribes. Because, you know, 50 years, we've made a lot of progress with the Clean Water Act, but I say that there's still a lot more work to done, and it's not going to just rest with the EPA. You know, we've got to have everyone working together, and whatever we can do at the agency to bring more folks to the table and to um, have states have the opportunity to bring more folks to the table um, is going to be critical in, in the next 50 years. Well, let me follow up with that just a little bit, because I, I, a lot of our listeners do not work in this field. They uh, are interested for personal reasons uh, and maybe not necessarily professional. Um, but if you run across someone like that and they ask you about your work, is there something that you tell you know an individual or a family that they can do to help support clean water work? Oh, I tell people, first of all, drink water from the tap. 
<laughs> because, you know, one of the other issues we have is, is trash in our waters. So how do we ensure that we do our little part, drink water from the tap? You know, the one of the biggest issues we have with trash in our waters is plastic. And I've been on trash cleanups and you know what we find? Plastic water bottles. It's it's very unfortunate. The other thing I tell people is look at what you put on your lawns. Look at what you're doing. Um, look at the pesticides, the fertilizers that you use. Try to try to pick products that um, that say that they're eco friendly. And do your homework because some have the labels and some may not necessarily be eco friendly. Do your homework. I also think it's important for folks to understand the value of conservation of water and to do the types of things that we um, we ask folks to do. Make sure that you address leaks internally in your system. Make sure that you um, that you buy water saving toilets and you consider running your dishwasher and your washer, doing full loads, not necessarily doing half loads. There's so many things that we can do as individuals to ensure that we um, we have clean water and safe water for generations to come. Great. I love it. I have a personal message that everybody can incorporate into their daily life. Benita, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining me on the Clean Water Pod. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. So the rest of this show is going to be clips from our previous guests. I took the power of podcasting and removed this question to save it for this last episode. So in this first clip, we're going to go all the way back to episode one with Tom Stiles from Kansas and the recently retired John Gooden from EPA headquarters to talk about big picture. So in this clip, I'll reframe the question to them. Tom Stiles will answer first, followed by John Gooden. And then after that clip, we will get into the rest of the guests from episodes two through seven to get the individual program perspectives of what the biggest challenges are in the next 50 years. John has uh, recently retired from EPA. Tom, you're going to work forever, but maybe eventually you're going to retire as well. And you're going to have to hand that baton off to, to the next generation of water quality professionals as well. Well, first of all, I just think that working for something that is bigger than yourself is what is is what bonds all of us in this in this particular space. This is something that you can contribute to as a as a professional, but there's a lot of work that was done before you ever got there and there will be a lot of work done after you leave and there's something very powerful in contributing to something that is that big. When you look back at all that has been accomplished over the first 50 years, it's it's the the easy question then is to look forward and say what does the next 50 years look like what are the challenges of the next 50 years where you're not going to necessarily impact those as a as a professional but that next generation is going to need to take on those challenges so what do those challenges look like what are you most looking forward to that future generation uh, figuring out from a water quality perspective well I'll open it with one of the best things epa taught us was how to um, engage multidisciplinary teams. Back in the early days, and I think the states were slow uh, to recognize the interplay between scientists and ecologists and geologists and engineers, 
it was pretty much standards were chemists and ecologists and permitting was engineers. Those lines are completely blurred now. Um, and given the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with now, we got to have all play all, all those talents come to come to the table to share their own uh, insight on how we might attack given given our problems there. Uh, I think this next generation is really key on collaboration, uh, more so than just keep your head down on to your desk and, and crank out the work. They're more engaging. They've got better social skills. They uh, uh, have looked beyond the horizon with social media to understand the world is much bigger than what's immediately outside the window. Um, so I think they're going to be adequately tooled to be able to handle the complexity of that in being able to draw on a, a, uh, the strength of, of, of a number of people. What we have to ensure is that, A, they don't forget how they got to where they're at, which is recognition of the struggles of, the, of what the past happened, and to also recognize that the science uh, continues to be, first and foremost, important. But in the course of carrying out these more collaborative efforts, that social science is every bit as important as physical and biological science, and that it doesn't matter. It becomes less important to be right as it is successful to basically frame an appropriate policy that gets toward uh, making improvements without shifting an undue burden on some some portion of, of, the, of, of the citizenry. So uh, that larger worldview, I think, is, is ready to take on these challenges more so than probably my uh, my generation, my generation tends to almost fall to the old uh, connotation of, well, back in my day, we'd always done it this way, and it's almost quasi-bureaucratic in, in, in the approach. Those, those are the big walls that have to be broken down because the complexity of the next set of issues uh, really don't lend themselves very easily to just a clean, linear command control uh, approach to, to, to being solved. Yeah, and I think uh, maybe two observations I'd share on that uh, question, Jeff. One is the collaborative federalism model of the Clean Water Act uh, does provide for the opportunity for uh, individual states to pursue uh, actions that they feel respond to the priorities of, of water quality needs in their states. And as a result, there are um, a host of entrepreneurial and other activities that are taking place across the country. <clears throat> and there's a great opportunity to learn about the successes and challenges of taking certain approaches uh, based on uh, state experience. And I think this is a, an area that will be helpful for people to look to not only if there are some, um, if there's some motivation to pursue something nationally that seems to uh, really work where it's been tried and experimented uh, with at the, at the state level. Um, and then also to, uh, to provide 
the opportunity for folks to um, to borrow from those uh, successful approaches that they see in uh, in their sister uh, sister states. Um, I think a second uh, uh, thought that I have on 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 this uh, uh, question is the prioritization one. Um, as Tom mentioned at the outset, uh, there was uh, some real serious concern regarding the direct discharge of pollutants into rivers and, and lakes and, and streams early on. And the 402 uh, permitting program was largely established to, uh, to control those discharges and ensure that um, those point source discharges were not harming uh, water quality. Uh, that program was very successful and has been very successful in in um, addressing what made up the bulk of the concern at that time. That concern now has shifted uh, to the non-point source arena where we see 75% plus uh, of uh, our waters that have uh, some impairment. Um, it's associated with a non-point source um, uh, pollutant. Uh, and so uh, the question is, you know, how can we make that same uh, stride uh, toward clean water nationwide in addressing uh, non-point sources? And I think that's that's a huge, huge question given the structure of the law, which does not uh, provide for a permitting program in those uh, in those circumstances. And so I think as we see emerging contaminants, as we see other challenges that are coming up on the horizon, I think figuring out how to prioritize limited resources in a way that gives us the biggest bang for the buck is, is going to be a big, uh, big challenge facing us here in the coming years. So now we'll go to episode two and Jennifer Weigel from Oregon, who works in the Water Quality Standards Program. I think one of the, the biggest challenges we're going to have, one of the things that, that we are very capable of right now is collecting large data sets, right? I mean, the power of data is both um, both an opportunity and a challenge. Um, I know when we completed our last um, statewide assessment of water quality against our water quality standards, um, we had over over a five-year period of collected data that we had available to us, we had over 7.5 million rows of data. Um, huge amount of data. Um, and that's not even considering the other kinds of data that we have around landscape and geospatial information, which is a wealth of data and, and can potentially lead to a wealth of understanding. Tempering that with, um, you know, so we've got, we've got just this great opportunity, but I think the, the challenges of the future are also similarly complex, right? So whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about um, you know population centers um, growing larger and urbanized areas continuing to grow, um, whether we're talking about modification on the landscape or attempts to return landscapes to pre-modified conditions, um, such as you know. Once upon a time, it was thought to be the best idea ever to straighten straighten stream channels, but now we know that's not so wise for flooding and things like that. It's actually much better to have a natural meandering stream. So how do we start with things like these kind of basic tools like water quality standards, which are kind of basic, 
and really have them morph into something that reflects this, what we know is, is uh, very complex dynamic systems. How do, we, how do we bridge that gap? And how do we ultimately bring all this data and information we have into something that ultimately becomes manageable and action oriented? So how do we translate all this data and information into something that says, this is what needs to happen here? We, or we can't, we should be preventing why from happening over there. Um, how do we interplay standards in the whole Clean Water Act with things like flood mitigation um, and kind of hazards? I mean, there's these things that, that, that could be an important tool, but this, this next generation of kind of really potentially sophisticated thinking um, about how do we prioritize the work we do? How do we use data and information to do it? And how can we use things that are tools that are available to us from the Clean Water Act, which is how we set standards and kind of get the ball rolling on some of these things to, to be helpful and not um, have unintended consequences as being some sort of impediment for how we do our work. So I think it's just it's just this, this, this future of increasing complexity that to me is really going to be the next generation of how do we use how do we use the tools under a 1972 Clean Water Act to really meet the the demands and needs of our environment in the future. And I think that's that's where that's really the the big the big question in front of us for the next few decades. Moving right along to episode three, where we talked to Monty Porter from Oklahoma and Kelly Merrill from Vermont about the water quality monitoring program and what they see as the biggest challenges in the next 50 years. Uh, we need to begin looking at our data in much more, much more useful ways sometimes. You know, are waters improving or not? And if they are, uh, you know, using things like trend analysis, which has become pretty sophisticated to be able to tell you things. Uh, using using cofactors like land use and land cover and other things to inform your trend analysis, which is becoming this 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 really large area of us being able to utilize our data in a much more effective way to look at the effect of the landscape. There are things we can do to look at our data that get beyond just 303D listing or 305B reporting. We are so, I think, sometimes stuck into this reporting paradigm that we don't take our information and use it as effectively as we could. A second thing is we need to be developing more well-rounded scientists. I'm worried sometimes about how our colleges are teaching biology, ecology uh, to people who do what we do. So I think it's up to professional organizations and us to begin taking in and mentoring our young scientists to understand things that before, like from a naturalist perspective, that before I, I, I grew up working with naturalists, some of them. Now it kind of went away, you know, but as, as I as I got older in my career, but we need to mentor people into that aspect of it because you need to understand the systems you're working in, not just what this data is supposed to tell you, but but when you're seeing something, what's your expectations of that now? I think it helps you to understand how you approach it. So develop more well-rounded scientists. I think we have to continue doing that. The costs of monitoring are going up. We've got, we're, we're struggling with that and we've got to figure out ways to deal with that. Inflation happens, not just in grocery stores. It happens not just in, in not just in the service industries. It happens in things like monitoring too. The cost of vehicles are going up, the cost of fuel, the cost of employment, everything's going up. We need to figure out ways of dealing with that because if we don't, we're going to lose the ability to develop these long-term data sets that Kelly and I love because things are going to start getting cut. So we need to figure out ways of dealing with the cost of monitoring. And I'm going to end with this one and then I'll stop. This goes back to that communication piece. It's one of the things that we have got to start communicating better to the public. Uh, there's a there's a 
uh, there's a theory called tipping point theory, uh, which is been in vogue in various uh, scientific endeavors. It's becoming more in vogue in, in environmental monitoring. There are things that we do to insult our environment that we reach a point where you, you see these relationships occurring and, and degradation in the environment, and you have an ability to heal that. But then you reach a point where you drop over the, you come over the top of that hill. And now you've reached a point where it's much more difficult to go back and and heal and and improve what you've now degraded. And those aren't just single incidences. There's another one that occurs here. And there's another one that occurs here or down here if you want to do it the other direction. I think what we don't do a good job of communicating sometimes because it sounds like the sky is falling, you know, is that tipping point theory is real. And we have to we have to protect our waters. And this goes back to anti-degradation, high quality waters that Kelly was talking about before. And it's not just high quality waters doesn't just mean the things that are the most scenic. It means what's supporting the ecology that's in that system that may not look pretty at all. We need to be able to communicate to people who make decisions, to the public who's voting for them, um, to the people who can 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 put resources in the proper place that we are going to reach a point where we can't turn back. And that's not good. Part of protecting our resources is realizing that, that, that although there's a lot of different users and a lot of different things coming from, there's a point at which if you reach those tipping points, now what you're using for things like industry or agriculture, other things that recreation, you're not going to begin using the loss of use there too, municipal water supplies. We have to we have to do a better job of communicating tipping point theory, not as tipping point theory, but as the idea to people that that we have we have the responsibility in what we do is to recognize and begin to understand as a community of people, we will reach points where we can't come back from in the environment in the environment. That's the part of it that I hope these young and upcoming professionals, these really smart kids who are coming out right now and doing these things that I just greatly admire, will figure out ways of getting that across that, that we have failed at doing. Um, and I and I think that that has to happen. That's a huge challenge over the next 50 years. One of the other things that's going to be a challenge in uh, the next 50 years of implementation of the Clean Water Act is this idea of setting realistic expectations for our waters uh, in our water quality standards in the face of climate change and the global freshwater biodiversity crisis. There's uh, Robert W. Adler from the University of Utah had written a piece about revisiting the fundamental principles of the Clean Water Act back in 2010. And he advocated for moving from a focus on this idea of ecological stability or equilibrium to an emphasis on more ecological health and resilience of the nation's waters. And so while recognizing that, you know, as I stated earlier, that we need to continue to hold our waters to these discrete water quality standards, that we need to really more fully embrace um, the measures of ecological health, like biocriteria, um, which is that direct measure of the integrity of our waters. So I think moving forward, um, setting those expectations. I mean, in Europe, there's these, you know, discussions of rewilding, this recognition that the idea of restoration is gone. We're in the Anthropocene now, and um, there is no going back to a 
reference condition. Um, there is the protection of our highest quality, least disturbed waters um, that we need to, to begin to focus more on. Because uh, as I like to say, is that we have forever to restore um, our impaired waters, but we only have a finite amount of time to save what um, Larry Willis, for, retired now from Virginia Department of um, Environmental Quality, used to term uh, the best of what's left or bowl. Um, so we have a finite amount of time to save the best of what's left. Moving on to episode four, where we talk to Miranda Nichols from Minnesota and Dustin Scholl from Pennsylvania about the impaired waters list. Here's what they had to say about the biggest challenges in the next 50 years. One of the challenges is going to be climate change. And we don't, we're only scratching the surface with how it's going to affect our waters. In Minnesota, we have, we're worried about our cold water lakes and being able to um, maintain those cold water fisheries. And if we're warming our water, how are we gonna treat that on the impaired waters list? How do you write a total maximum daily load for that? I think that is one of the aspects and we're already seeing climate change in our rivers. And I'm sure Dustin knows all sorts of things about that. So on a broad scale climate change, I would love in 50 years for our impaired waters list to be much smaller than it is. So, but I don't, I can't promise that. I can't, I can't foresee that because we will, as we're working to improve the waters on the list and restore them, we're going to see the new challenges coming. Yeah. So just to, to add on to that, my mind immediately went to climate change. Thank you, Miranda. That was exactly what I was thinking. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's a lot of emerging contaminants um, that we are just now starting to talk about. Um, you know, PFAS, um, you know, those Can you describe chemicals. That? Can you define PFAS? Yeah. So and when, where um, it's found and that kind of stuff. If... Yeah, sure. So like a lot of the um, firefighting chemicals and nonstick cookware type chemicals, these are uh, chemicals that are on to help, um, you know, repel water and repel other chemicals and are fire retardant. These are great chemicals that we've developed that are now finding their way into our water bodies. And the more science progresses, the more we understand that these chemicals are not good um, for humans and, and aquatic life, causing cancer uh, potentially. And um, there's just so much that we don't know about them. How long do they persist in the environment? Um, and getting a handle on that in the future is gonna be extremely difficult. We're still trying to get a handle on our conventional issues like mining and, um, you know, just bad landscape practices. Uh, now we have climate change. Now we have some of these emerging contaminants that, that we're concerned about. And very briefly, you know, this became um, really apparent during one of our biggest issues that we had on the Susquehanna River, which runs straight down uh, kind of the center of Pennsylvania and down into our Chesapeake Bay. Um, and we had smallmouth bass uh, die off in there. And we did a very long and large investigation into that. And emerging contaminants, hormones, estrogens, uh, pesticides, all of those chemicals that we don't have a great handle on became the forefront of some of our concerns and trying to understand them better um, was, was a tremendous challenge and it's not going away. 
Circling back to episode five, the episode where we talked about total maximum daily loads. This episode featured Tracy Ayat from Connecticut and Ron Stieg from Wyoming. So I'm excited about having uh, new staff to work with um, or existing staff who are new to the TMDL program. There's, there is a lot of challenges. We're now facing the harder issues through our TMDL program, and we really need to lean into the science and the data, um, and we really need to partner and collaborate with the groups who will be doing the implementation because we're talking about things that are going to require a lot of time and effort and money to fix. And so that's that's a, a big resource challenge. And people who are newer to the program need to understand uh, the where the program has come from. They're thankfully bringing a lot new um, technology and science where they can use that to solve some of these issues. Um, so that's that's one of the challenges, I think, that we're facing some of the harder problems to solve. The other is that we're also now trying to move more um, to being socially responsible with the planning that we're doing. So moving a lot of us in the program are scientists or we have a technology background and we're beginning to talk about issues such as environmental justice and working with communities on what's important to them and learning how to communicate scientific concepts to non-technical folks or learning how to really listen and understand what's important for the communities that we're working within and bringing that information back to our planning. I think those are some of the, the challenges that, that folks will be facing as the program moves forward. And Ron, what about you? What do you see as the biggest challenges in the next 50 years of the Clean Water Act with regards to the total maximum daily load program? Well, I think I've got maybe two challenges. One is kind of focused on some of the smaller states in the West. We're at a different place than, than many of the, the larger states. We've got 600 some thousand people total in, in the state. Our TMDL program, TMDL and assessment program, we've got two staff. So we're at kind of a different place. And um, I don't know that it's a challenge. It's almost an opportunity. The, the vision strategy that we, we mentioned before, I think, has provided us with an opportunity to take a broader look at our program and ensure that we've got a solid foundation for moving forward with, with the TMDL program. Unlike many of the, the larger states that have been at this um, for many years with a lot more resources than some of the, the smaller states out here, we still need to build a solid foundation. We still need to create some assessment methods, update our assessment methods, create tools for doing data analysis, um, et cetera. So <clears throat> I don't know that it's a challenge. It's kind of an opportunity with our our new vision strategy to more holistically look at our 303D programs, not just focus on prioritizing TMDLs, but prioritizing 
all of those activities along sort of the whole Clean Water Act pathway from standards to assessment and monitoring to the TMDL to then the non-point source program, our permitting program, making sure that all of those pieces fit together, we're all talking together and working towards that common goal. Sort of, if you if you don't take a deep dive, you get the feeling that all these pieces are working together. If you do take that deep dive, you find that, well, maybe they, they aren't. So I think building a solid foundation is, it's an opportunity that we have, and I think it's super important. The other challenge that I think we have with, with implementing the Clean Water Act, we're starting to deal with nutrients more and more. Um, and what we have in terms of, of implementation through the TMDL, TMDLs are not self-implementing instruments. They're implemented through other programs. Um, I'm not suggesting that, that we create a big regulatory hammer, but honestly, the fact that, that um, non-point source implementation is largely voluntary, it's going to be a challenge to, to get big changes on the ground with, with a voluntary program and limited resources to kind of incentivize and, and push these voluntary programs forward. A great tease there from Ron as we'll be focusing on nutrients in the next season of the Clean Water Pod. Let's move on to episode six, where we talk to experts in the NPDES program. Joe Habrick from Rhode Island and Jeff Poupart from North Carolina talk about what they see as the biggest challenges in the next 50 years for the permitting program. I, I, th I think one of the biggest challenges is the lack of a simulative capacity that in, in some parts of our state uh, we, we've reached the, the capacity of the rivers that, that there is just no more room for for uh, oxygen consuming waste or, or some of those other things in the rivers because the, the, the flows uh, are varying a lot more because of uh, climate change. So it's really going to become a, a place where we're going to have to start saying no to some people. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for the program because people don't want to say no to to economic growth in certain parts of the state. But that's going to be you know, the, the first 50 years was easy in a way because we had had that capacity. We had low hanging fruit of implementing the technologies. But now with with emerging contaminants and 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 population growth, it's going to be really difficult to find the technologies to continue to make the program go forward so that we can have all the water meeting its uses, whether for drinking water or for, for ecosystem uh, support. Joe, same question to you. Biggest challenges of the next 50 years. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Jeff uh, did kind of mention one of them, um, you know, emerging pollutants. Uh, you know, I would just kind of go just into a little bit more specificity there and say, you know, PFAS is, is really the one that everyone's uh, mentioning today. Um, current time, we don't know what the allowable levels to be discharged are. Um, however, you know, it's, we, we do know there are absolutely this human health impacts, aquatic life impacts on them. So kind of the first step is identifying, you know, what are the allowable levels? Then the, then the next issue is going to be how do you address it? Because quite frankly, our typical wastewater treatment technologies are not designed to treat PFAS. They just move it from one media to another. So they'll take it out of wastewater, move it into biosolids. And now guess what? There's an issue you can't apply those biosolids to the land because you're going to contaminate the land. So then you say, well, we'll incinerate those biosolids. 
Well, now the PFAS is going out the stack unless you're doing, you know, uh, pyrolysis or, or some more elaborate incineration technologies. So I, I think that's one of the one of the top challenges uh, that you're going to see over maybe the next uh, five to ten years is PFAS. But there's certainly other emerging pollutants. Before um, you know, PFAS really uh, captured the spotlight. Uh, pharmaceutical and personal care products was an issue. As people you know take more and more medications, um, they tend to excrete a good portion of those pharmaceuticals that you take. Um, you know, and those pharmaceuticals can pass through wastewater treatment plants. Um, so we'll have to evaluate that. Microplastics is another emerging pollutant. Um, but again, I think PFAS is the one in the short term. Um, you know, another thing Jeff had mentioned, climate change. I think climate change is another challenge that, uh, you know, a lot of, particularly our uh, coastal states are gonna, gonna face. You know, again, kind of coming back to Rhode Island being the ocean state, um, you know, we're having uh, building into our RIFTES permits a resiliency planning requirement um, because a lot of these treatment plants are built close to the water because they're low. We're having them evaluate uh, their infrastructure to see, okay, when I upgrade this pump station, what type of improvements can I make to that pump station so it's more resilient to either sea level rise uh, high winds from hurricanes, those types of events. So when you know these be events become more and more frequent, uh, we don't want to have our collection, our wastewater treatment plants go down uh, or, or have adverse impacts. Um, and then maybe just one last one, um, just real quickly. Uh, actually, you mentioned uh, uh, in, in the question. You know, one of the issues is a lot of the people working in this field are now reaching the kind of the end of their careers. And I think that's one of the challenges that, that all of us in the environmental field, not just MPBES, are going to have is how do you, how do you um, kind of retain that institutional knowledge and pass it along to the, the next generation of the workforce uh, that's coming down the line? Um, you know, again, it's not specific to MPBES, but uh, it's certainly something, um, you know, because, you know, the environmental movement really took hold in the 70s and, and 80s. So a lot of, you know, the the workforce now is reaching retirement age. And, and you know, we have to figure out, you know, how to effectively pass along that institutional knowledge. And finally, let's hear from Steve Conradi in Iowa and Michaela Lambert from Kentucky about what are the challenges of the non-point source program in the next 50 years? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're getting some updated guidelines from the Environmental Protection Agency here soon. Uh, probably by this time next year, we'll have kind of an idea of how they want to uh, refocus some of the 319 program efforts on uh, things like climate resilience, um, you know, stuff that we don't necessarily think of, uh, you know, emerging issues, you could say, um, on the water quality side of things. We understand as scientists that climate has a big impact on, uh, you know, quantity and quality of water, as it were. Um, but formalizing that in our programs is something new, uh, really. And, and I think over the next 50 years, that's going to be a bigger and bigger piece of, of how we think about our water quality work in Iowa and elsewhere. Um, 
I think the quantity thing in particular will be uh, an increased area of, of relevance. We've had projects that have focused on water quantity, whether it be, you know, to address uh, frequent flooding and things like that. But, you know, we, we tend to be more in the water quality world. And so being able to think about that quantity piece um, is, is kind of a, a new charge for us, I would say, um, in, in a lot of ways. And so getting that referenced in our non-point plan is important. And, and we, we really believe that we need to have that in there just to sort of be able to um, react to, you know, like you said, the next 50 years. Uh, I, I'm not going to be around for the full 50 years. At least I don't think so um, for, from, as an employee, uh, but certainly helping, you know, the next wave of water quality professionals in Iowa, um, you know, plot their path forward and, and, and try to, you know, address some of these needs in the future uh, is something that I, tremendous responsibility. I, you know, I, I have no idea uh, how to predict everything that's going to get, you know, weird and crazy in, in the world uh, with a, with a change in climate. Uh, but we'll get there as a team, I think, and, and, uh, you know, take it bit by bit. Uh, so that's going to be a big one. And then some of the other things are, are more societal in nature. Uh, you know, the, the environmental justice initiatives that the current administration has, has put into some of their programs. Um, you know, we will need to react to that as, as we get more information, um, and potentially change, you know, the, the types of partnerships we uh, lean on in, in some fundamental ways uh, going forward. Um, and, you know, understanding that, that some of these changes are, uh, you know, based on this administration's priorities, and there could be new priorities from a different administration in the future that we'd have to react to as well. But building resilience, pr programmatic resilience is kind of like the key for the next 50 years. Um, you know, we want to make sure that Iowa is, is situated to, to capture a 319 grant year on year. Uh, we want to make sure the, the program has a home, uh, whether that's with the Department of Natural Resources or otherwise. We certainly hope it's with the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, but to understand that, you know, the state has to put some in to get this out uh, of the federal government, too. Uh, and, and the money is vital to supporting these efforts, even if it's, you know, not a lot compared to some of the other programs out there. It's just, it's able to fund the people uh, mainly that, that make the whole thing go. Uh, and without that, you know, we would be in a, in a tricky spot. So positioning Iowa to continue to capture those funds and, and do good things, good work with them uh, is kind of, you know, our charge uh, for the next generation of water quality professionals in Iowa. Um, and I'll be there for a bit of it, but, uh, like I said, you know, 50 years is, that's a, that's a long view, I think. So hard for me to, to even think to the end of all that, but even within the next 10, uh, with this non-point source plan, you know, we're trying to address, uh, you know, some of the things we see as imminent, uh, but also, you know, relatively emergent too, with the, with the climate issue, uh, and the environmental justice issue. So. Well, Steve, it kind of describing like a, a relay race, right? You don't know how long the race is and you don't know how many legs of that race you in particular are going to run. But you know that right now you got the baton in your hand. You, you've got a direction and you're going to run that leg of the race. And at some point you're going to hand it off to an, another professional who's going to take that a next distance further. So I think it's a, an interesting way to look at things. Michaela, what about you? Do you have anything that you're thinking about as we look forward into the next 50 years of the Clean Water Act? Are you thinking about uh, anything specific in terms of like challenges pollution wise or, or anything like that um, or big picture? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I would echo 
all of what Steve just said. You know, we are in the same, the same thought process. Climate resiliency and environmental justice are two things that we have worked more formalized into our program and are currently working to formalize into our program. We know that these are going to be long-term goals. But on the pollution end of things, um, with the worsening dead zone in the Gulf, we're really focusing on nutrients in Kentucky, partnering with the Hypoxia Task Force, the Mississippi River Basin, but also emerging contaminants, things like PFAS. In what ways does 319 need to interact with that? We're also really pushing this move away from great infrastructure where we can, knowing that we have some climate impacts potentially or more seriously coming our way. So how can we incorporate nature-based solutions, things like wetlands or green infrastructure practices into our planning, into our projects and into our program to make not only our program and projects more resilient, but the communities that we implement those in. And just like Steve said, with those is gonna come the need to lean on our partnerships and strengthen partnerships, whether those are local partnerships, statewide or even regionally. Um, but we really need to leverage our efforts and work together to make the most progress and improvements that we can. And that will do it for season one of the Clean Water Pod. Thank you so much for listening to this first season. I had a lot of fun putting this together, talking to a lot of great people. I want to thank all of them for their time and their expertise and coming on and sharing that with us. We are going to take a break for the summer, but that doesn't mean that we're not hard at work. I will be working with our team and doing interviews over the summer to get season two ready. As we've talked about a few times, we're going to be focusing on nutrients and what that means for water quality in the United States. If you have any questions about the first season or want to talk about the next season, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at CleanWaterPod, or you can send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod. Until next season, thank you for listening.